Welcome to Podcast Ed, the podcast of reimagineonline.org, sparking the evolution of education choice. On this episode, senior writer Lisa Bowie talks with Doug Tuthill, president of Step Up for Students, and Heidi Nesset, Step Up's director of platform service operations. Today I have with me two leaders from Step Up for Students, Doug Tuthill and Heidi Nesset. Doug is president of Step Up, and Heidi is the organization's director of platform service operations. They're going to share some data about the scholarship program's growth since the landmark expansion of education choice in 2021 and critical next steps necessary to make education choice scalable to serve more families regardless of income. They also will tell us what changes are already being made to create an infrastructure necessary to achieve that goal. Plus, they'll offer us a look ahead at other improvements that may be on the horizon regarding education choice. Doug and Heidi, welcome to the program. I understand it's infrastructure week or or maybe infrastructure year at Step Up for Students. Thank you, Lisa. I know that's probably not the sexiest topic in the world, but hopefully by the end of the show, people will have an appreciation of how important it is to be able to scale up the programs that we're managing. Yeah, I think they will. So, Doug, let's get started by finding out how much the scholarship programs have grown since that expansion went into effect. Can can you give us an overview of the latest numbers? Yeah, the numbers are crazy, Lisa. It's amazing what what kind of growth we're experiencing. We're probably on target to serve about 304,000 students this year, which is probably around 12% of all the students in the the state of Florida. About 179 to 180,000 of those kids will be on income-based scholarships. That is, they qualify based on family income. About 67,000 will be kids who qualify based on unique abilities or unique needs. And about 58,000 are on a reading scholarship, which is interesting. It's only for kids who are in district schools who are struggling readers in K through five. So together, we're talking about, about like I said, about 304,000 kids, which, by the way, would make us the sixth largest school district in the country if we were a school district. Wow. And Choice has really taken Florida and, and I might add the nation, too, by storm. Um, I know 21 other states so far and and maybe some more have expanded education choice. So, Doug, where do we go from here and what needs to happen for continued progress? Well, what we're seeing is parents increasingly want more freedom and more resources to customize education for their child. We certainly saw it during the pandemic that parents were scrambling to find out different options for for their children. And so really what's moving forward is um, trying to provide the infrastructure like we talked about before to help families be able to provide a customized education uh, for their children. And also part of that is uh, we'll talk some more about sort of this virtuous cycle between supply and demand. With all the demand that that we're seeing right now, like I said, over 304,000 kids in Florida, it's also causing a real change on the supply side. We're seeing lots of teachers, for example, start their own schools, start their own hybrid schools. There's a whole term called mini schools where, or micro schools where these small schools are being created. So you're seeing a lot of innovation, a lot of diversity on the supply side. And that's also creating then more people on the demand side wanting access to more flexibility. So you have this very positive cycle of higher quality supply, more innovation, more diversity on the supply side, causing more families to want to access these additional opportunities. And as more families want more opportunities, more educators are creating more opportunities. So you got this really virtuous cycle. And uh, that's really what's driving the growth is supply and demand working together to help each other grow. So basically what I'm hearing you say is the three things that that are happening is customization, and then you need a couple of other things, policy and infrastructure 
to make all of that possible. So let's drill down to each one of those and we'll start with customization. What exactly do you mean by that? And and where's the current system falling short? Well, as every parent knows, every child is unique and every parent wants an education that is customized to meet each child's needs. Historically, unfortunately, we've never been able to go to scale with customization. So we relied on a one-size-fits-all system because that has been scalable. And so the challenge today is how do we create a system that's flexible enough to provide every child with an education that's customized to his or her needs, but do that in a way that goes to scale? And how do we create policies that enable that? And then how do we build like we talked about, how do we implement uh, infrastructure that allows us to customize at scale? And that's really where we are right now, certainly in Florida and around, around the country, is making sure we get the policies right, and then also making sure that we have the infrastructure in place to be able to execute at scale. Otherwise, if we can't do that, then we'll revert back to a one-size-fits-all system for everybody but the affluent. I mean, the affluent have always been able to customize because they can afford all these other options, but people who don't have a lot of resources haven't been able to do that. And that's really where we are right now is, can we go to scale with customization that's available to everybody, just not the affluent? What would need to change to create that customization so that every student gets access to the best possible education environment for them? Well, the the most important thing is giving parents control of their public education dollars and then the flexibility to use those dollars to provide a a customized education for for each child. That's really the, the, the battle that's going on is who's going to control the money? And that's where the power is. Is the money going to be controlled by centralized government monopoly or are we going to be more democratic and let and let families have more control over their education funds and then the flexibility to spend those funds in a way that meets the needs of each child? The term education savings account is one that our listeners may be familiar with. It's the term that's being used around the country and in Florida to describe scholarships that are much more flexible that allows parents to spend money on, a, on an array of education products and services. ESAs are certainly the, the, the future of the ed choice movement, but managing ESAs effectively and efficiently is really complex. And that's why we're talking about infrastructure today. How do you build an infrastructure that allows you to manage ESAs effectively and efficiently? That's going to be the key to really customize, making customization the norm in public education. If we can scale that up, then that'll be a major change and a major improvement for public education uh, in Florida and, and nationwide. Why are they so important to the current ed choice movement? Why is infrastructure so important? Mm-hmm. Well, um, we need to be able to support millions of kids <clears throat> using ESAs. And that means a couple things you have to do. First of all, you have to qualify children for the funding amount and the program that best meets their needs. And if you have millions of children coming into the system, in Florida, for example, we have about 3 million K-12 kids. <clears throat> if you were to make ESAs available for everybody, that's probably not in the future of Florida, but if that were to happen around the country, let's say there's 3 million kids nationwide, to be able to qualify those kids for the right scholarship program, the right amount of funding, that's obviously a, a major I- endeavor. Next, you wanna help families develop a customized learning plan for each student. That's also important. Not every, not every parent you know, has, a, has a degree in educational psychology, for example, or, or has, a, has a deep background in pedagogy. And so providing parents with information and support in order to help them figure out what's the right path for my child, mm-hmm. that's also important. Then you also want to help the families access the appropriate education services and products that would allow them to successfully implement each child's uh, plan. 
And finally, you want them to be able to purchase those products and services with their ESA funds, but you want that purchasing process to be as hassle-free as possible. Many ESA critics don't believe parents, particularly low-income parents, are capable of making good education decisions uh, for their children. I think that's wrong, but we have to show that it's wrong in the, in the political environment that we in, we're in. And, and, and part of that is making sure that families have really good information and good support systems to help them, help them make good decisions. That's all part of the world of the infrastructure that we're trying to build. Onboarding families, onboarding providers, making sure families have the right amount of, of resources, making sure they have a, an information, develop a good plan, make sure they have the information to make good choices, to make good purchases from the vendors, and also making sure that purchase process is as simple and elegant as possible. Oh, it sounds like it's a three-legged stool. Customization, policy, and infrastructure all working together. Obviously, when you you talk about these things, you you need a well-regulated, well-managed public education market, which I've I've heard you mention before. Why is this need so important? And and what are some key features of that market that you envision? Well, you want to make sure that you're protecting the public good. And so one of the reasons that we've had this one-size-fits-all centralized command and control system is people in government felt like the only way to make sure that public education served the public good is to take all the power away from families and centralize it so these really smart people in, in a central location could make could make good decisions for every child. Of course, that, that doesn't work because it's impossible then for those folks to understand the needs of every child. And so really, you need a more decentralized system so you can maximize the wisdom that parents have of their own, their own children. And so that's really a critical part uh, of all this is making sure that, you know, we can help parents have the information they need to make really good decisions. When you talk about regulating the market, what you're talking about is regulating the interactions between families and the providers in such a way that you make sure you're, you're protecting the public good, making sure that kids are getting uh, the academics they need and the other social and emotional development opportunities that they need. So you want to you want to try to find the right balance between individualization, personalization, customization, but also there has to be some common goals out there to make sure that you serve the public good. And regulating the market in that way is really important. You also want to reduce the barriers to entry because you want a lot of in, particularly on the supply side. You want a lot of educators to be able to come in and create a lot of innovation. You're seeing all around the country, but also in Florida, it's really amazing all the innovation we're seeing with small schools, with hybrid schools, teachers leaving uh, the, the public school system to go out on their own and be entrepreneurs to create their own schools. Uh, we, we just wrote a, a paper on the, the movement that we're seeing in Florida where more and more educators are starting their own schools. But you also want to make sure you regulate that. You don't want you don't want bad actors starting schools. You want to make sure that um, the people who are providing school uh, schools for their kids, that these people are properly regulated, that you don't have people who might be doing want to do bad things, might want to steal money, et cetera. So you have to balance all that. You want to balance freedom with regulation to make sure that freedom is done in such a way that benefits every child, but also serves the public good. Yeah, and we obviously need to have good stewardship if taxpayer dollars are involved. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean by regulation is regulating the environment so that you maximize freedom, but also uh, do it in such a way that you can make sure bad actors don't come in and do things that are going to undermine, undermine the public good. Yes, forms of infrastructure that would be necessary for success in this, and, and what resources would that involve? Well, as I mentioned before, you want to onboard the families, and you want to also want to onboard the vendors into the market, and making sure that families access the right amount of funding and the right kind of services is really important. 
making sure that you're accessing the right vendors. You want to make sure that if a teacher, if a parent wants to access a tutor, you want to make sure that the tutor is somebody who's qualified to do the work they're being asked to do. So you want to make sure that you regulate on both sides, the onboarding of the families, the onboarding of the providers. And I said, like I said before, information is critical. The flow of information in any market is critical for that market to be successful. You want to make sure that parents have all the information they need to make really good choices for their children. You also want to make make sure that the providers, whether it's teachers or tutors, um, uh, schools, or some, uh, whatever, it, whatever it is, you want to make sure they have all the information they need in order to serve each child appropriately. And then, of course, you have the financial transactions. You want to make sure that the right amount of money goes to the right people at the right times. Uh, you want to make sure that there's high level of customer satisfaction. All that is information that has to be managed in some sort of infrastructure platform in order for the market to work well. And that's really what we're talking about is um, making sure that all those sections of the market work really well. Everything works well in harmony, supply and demand. Parents and schools are working together as partnerships. In partnership, you're maximizing your human capital. So you're getting the most value out of that human capital and you're regulating the market in such a way that you're taking advantage of the wisdom of teachers, the wisdom of parents, the wisdom of students, the wisdom of community groups. You want everybody's wisdom coming together to make sure that every child has the very best experience. Well, understand the key word here, I think, is platform. Speaking of platforms, Heidi, I understand that Step Up's already been building such an ESA platform called Education Market Platform or EMMA. What, what is EMMA and what are some of EMMA's key components? Sure. Thanks, Lisa. So EMMA is really the one-stop shop to facilitate all the interactions that parents and providers might have as they navigate a student's educational journey through uh, their ESA. So at its heart, it's really connecting parents to information and also facilitating that engagement um, with their education providers. Emma is really being designed to provide that transparency to parents so that they can navigate through that student's learning plan and engage with those providers that can help support and maximize those outcomes for students. So over the years, we've really been collecting data from parents and providers that's really helped formulate Emma's design. Parents really need to have real-time access to all the financial transactions associated with their student's account, and Emma provides all of that information to parents. They can build reports and forms and organize that data so that they can utilize it to best serve the needs of their family and of their students and provide must be able to utilize Emma to have access to the marketplace and engage with families that might need their services or educational goods. So it's really it's really kind of the heart of, of what is needed to facilitate an ESA and allow parents to utilize that funding to customize their students' education. One piece that I really want to touch on that's important to Emma's design is kind of the the opportunity that we see for the future of Emma. As these programs become larger, we are we know that we're going to need to utilize technology to help augment and support parents as they build out these educational journeys for their students. And so we are designing Emma in a way to be able to constantly be able to enhance what we can provide to families and improve that experience so that we have a scalable model moving forward for ESA management. I mean, one day it'll be like my Echo Dot. (laughs) 
where you just order order your services in, in spoken word, who knows? But it sounds like it's going to be part of a well-regulated, well-managed public education market that Doug, Doug touched on earlier. Yes, absolutely. And as Doug mentioned, ESAs by design must have these guardrails in place to really protect the funding and ensure that funding is being utilized for educational expenses. So Emma is really being designed to account for all those guardrails um, to make sure that those guardrails are um, at every step of the process throughout the scholarships management. So, for example, if a service is not an allowable expense that a provider provides, it wouldn't even be visible for the parent to utilize scholarship funds. <clears throat> Additionally, all providers really need to be vetted to ensure that they have the credentials necessary based on the statutory language of the ESA um, before they can provide services to a parent. So the parent will have that transparency knowing that the providers that are within EMMA are have services that their student would be able to utilize um, their educational uh, funding through their US ESA to engage in that service. Additionally, and, and really important to the design of EMMA is the data collection and the reporting requirements that, that we need to accommodate, not only statutorily, but also to help support and give the public insight on what folks are spending these education dollars on. It really helps both protect the integrity of the program while also maximizing that flexibility that parents have to to spend their educational funding on. I like the fact that it'll be designed with a no wrong door for families. So as you build out Emma, what are some challenges that your team is facing and you know will they be able to manage say two million ESAs in three years? So, you know, what we're building is unique. This this hasn't been done before. As Doug mentioned, you know, customization's certainly been something that's accessible for affluent families, but really putting the dollars um, in the hands of all of these families and giving them that, that level playing field is unique. And we have to build a marketplace that can facilitate that. And many other platform marketplaces that we can think of, Uber, for example, are initially designed and then regulation is built in on the back end to accommodate the design of the platform. In the space that we're operating, the, the platform has to be designed to accommodate the regulation that actually created the need for this type of platform marketplace. So we're, we're operating here a little bit on a reverse model of typical platform marketplace design. So that just comes with a unique set of challenges. Additionally, ESAs are different state to state, and even within some states, there's different ESAs that have different regulatory restrictions on them. And so we have to build EMMA to accommodate for the configuration that is needed based on the unique opportunities with each scholarship program. We also have a large change management piece that we have to accommodate as we roll out ESAs more broadly in Florida and even nationwide. Parents need to really understand how they can utilize this funding, the, the vast opportunities that this funding allows them to customize their child's education. And we've got to work with and support providers as they engage with our scholarship families so that they can both be adequately prepared 
prepared to utilize Emma to to really maximize its potential to help support that student's educational journey. And so we've got we've got some challenges there, but I'm I'm certain that we are we're building Emma in a way that will really help support parents. And as I mentioned. We've been collecting a lot of feedback from parents and providers over the years as we've expanded ESAs in Florida, and I'm I'm very confident that the design that we have with Emma will be a scalable model to reach millions of families in years to come. That is great. I know this team has worked really hard. This change is going to mean that hundreds of families, thousands of families will be involved in something that's never been done before. And and for them, it's a real sea change from the one size fits all or fits most. How can it be carried out on such a huge scale and be efficient for both families and taxpayers? So one of the things that we've really challenged ourselves to think about is how we can augment um, the technology or the platform with, you know, for the future to accommodate for utilizing some machine learning or artificial intelligence to support families. Doug talked a little bit about creating um, this this plan, an individualized plan for each student. As we create those individualized plans and parents get into the system and design those plans, how can we use machine learning and artificial intelligence of all of the pieces that we've um, learned along the way to help support those parents making those decisions and ensuring that they are seeing the outcomes that they desire for their student. So we have a lot of conversations about how we can design Emma to accommodate kind of that future state of utilizing technology to help support parents. But we know technology alone really isn't going to solve solve every need we have. We will have to have some human expertise to help support these parents um, as they have these these opportunities for customization for their children. And so we think a lot about how we can utilize expertise in the education field to help support parents. So I think what you'll see is really a mix of utilizing a lot of great human expertise as well as maximizing our technology to help support and inform parents to make those those choices. That is great to hear, and especially that they won't be kind of all on their own. I understand this is underway in West Virginia. I mean, the legislature approved landmark ESA legislation, and the the state Supreme Court cleared the way for it just recently. What can we learn from what's happening in West Virginia about best practices? Sure. Yes, you're right. We are well underway in West Virginia, and we've got to tip our hat to our friends over there in West Virginia because you know one exciting thing in particular that excites me about West Virginia is in their first year of their program, about one percent of the students' population in West Virginia um, showed up to to demand these educational choice options and and want to customize their education utilizing an ESA. In Florida, it took us much longer than one year to see that level of demand. And so I think what we're seeing is that the tide changing in West Virginia is a great example of how parents are demanding customization in their child's education. But a little more to your point about you know, what what's working really well for West Virginia through their implementation, they've got a lot of great uh, policies within their design of their ESA that really helped jumpstart their implementation. Now, I wouldn't suggest 
just as quick of an impl implementation as West Virginia had to do, but but their ability to implement so quickly was a testament to, to the simplicity of their ESA design. They've got an independent board that is really helping drive a lot of the decision making. So the, the policy did not necessarily get into every detail of the unique of their scholarship program, nor did it get into all of the complexity. But the board has latitude and flexibility to make some of these decisions as they see how parents are interacting and engaging with the scholarship program as well as providers. They also simplified their eligibility requirements, which allowed us to stand up an application for their ESA um, rather simplicity. And we were able to work with their uh, Department of Education to determine student eligibility. And finally, they really want to maximize their education service providers that are available within their marketplace. And so the level of entry for those providers to engage and come into the system is um is being designed in a way that's very frictionless. They are maximizing the number of providers that they will have available so that they can meet that parental demand for that customization and choice. So I think there's going to be a lot of great things to come from West Virginia, and a lot of states are taking note and waiting to see how parents utilize and customize those education funds. So I we've had a great discussion today. Doug, do you have any closing thoughts you want to share with us on these programs? Well, first of all, Lisa, thank you for allowing us to talk about uh, infrastructure. I know that's not something that's top of people's minds, but we know that the key to educational savings accounts, uh, giving parents flexibility, empowering par parents and families to have a provide a customized education for each child, we know that that requires an infrastructure in order to be able to make that happen, particularly at scale. And so while everybody in the Ed Choice movement is, is properly talking about all these great innovations that are happening on, on the supply side, all these cool schools that are happening, and we're all excited about ESAs passing in various states, if we can't connect families and providers in an ESA environment in a very simple, elegant way, we're not going to be able to scale up the ESA movement, and it's going to really have a huge Im negative impact on the on the Ed Choice movement. So I, I just really it's really important for people to understand that there's enormous amount of work going on. I mean, Heidi is incredibly articulate about all the things that uh, her and her team are, are working through, but without the infrastructure in place to make it easy to connect families and, and providers and provide all the information and all the other support, the ESA movement and particularly the Ed Choice movement isn't going to really scale and make the kind of transformation that we hope that it makes in public education. So, again, it's it's a topic that very few people are talking about. I appreciate you giving us this opportunity. But the work that's being done with Emma is going to be critical to the future of the edu education choice movement, not just in Florida, but around the country. And so that's why we're very proud of this work. And uh, we'll continue to work with our partners around the country to make sure we have the infrastructure in place to make customization a norm for every family in America. That sounds great, Doug. And anybody who ever thinks that infrastructure isn't important, try taking a trip and not getting on an interstate. <laughs> and then you'll see how important it is. I want to thank you both for being on the program, and we just eagerly await to see what happens um, across the nation as Education Choice continues to, to take hold. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa.